Welcome to Memphis Machine. A Muddy Pig production. I'm Jonathan Bass. And I'm Carl Casperson, and together we're looking to show off the creative sights and sounds of Memphis, Tennessee. Amen. Hey, this episode of Memphis Machine is brought to you by Snakebite Company, makers of the original Snakebite bottle opener and Mamba bartending tool, 100% made in the USA. Snakebite loves making products and apparel for the happy hours, after hours, and weekends. And when it's your time to relax and be yourself, check them out at snakebite.co. That's snakebiteco.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at snakebiteco. I love these guys. Redwire Audio Video specializes in the design, installation, rental, and support of high-quality and affordable custom audio video lighting, broadcast, and control systems for worship facilities and large public venues. Good guys there at Redwire. You can reach them at Redwire AV. And last but not least. Not least. Not at all. (laughs) Ernestine and Hazel's The Bar with possibly the most vibe in Memphis. Whom without, we would not know each other. Right. The the Nate's Bar, where we recorded the majority of this season. Yes. In the heat, in the summer, in Memphis. uh, Right. (laughs) But what a glorious place. Speaking of heat, today's episode, Mr. Richard Cushing from the infamous band, the infamous Memphis band, Free World. Um, it, it was our guest on this episode, a uh, fantastic human being, a gunslinging bassist uh, of high caliber. And one of my favorite aspects of this interview is exploring his whole band management pedagogy. How about that? It was a lot of fun, too. And he's one of those people where you can just, you just let him go. Yeah you, hard, yeah, you hardly had to prompt him at all. And he had some great stories uh, regarding uh, his coming up of Memphis, his ideas of what the Memphis scene is like. And uh, overall, just a great snapshot of a guy who contributes greatly, in his whole band, all, all his guys, and um, uh, contribute greatly to the Memphis scene. You can catch them every Sunday at Blue City Cafe on Beale Street, directly across from BB's, uh, right at the uh, west end of Beale Street. Right. We get into a ton of history about Memphis musicians, uh, Bill Street, uh, the rebuilding. Yes. Great interview. We had lots of fun with Richard. Good times. Check it out. Enjoy it. All right. But welcome, Richard. Uh, now, is it Cushing or Cushing or it, it's like pushing, pushing with a C? Cushing. It's Cushing. Like Peter Cushing. You know, it took the me, great actor. It took me two years. Uncle. It took me two years. <laughs> really? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, Richard, uh, welcome to Memphis Machine. Uh, we are looking to tell the stories of Memphis music, and yours is pretty much at the top. Well, you are at the top of the list. You are our first victim. <laughs> yeah. First guest. We'll see by the end first of this. First guest, yeah. and uh, you are a mainstay. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the nice words I can come up with, but you, you more than, actually more than anyone I've met, even St. Louis, and L.A., you stayed more busy than most musicians I, I, I've ever known, um, and you you contribute weekly to uh, the Memphis music community. So welcome, and we're just hoping to cover some awesome ground and tell your story and talk about Memphis music. I'm here. Let's do it. We're here. Let's do it. Um, well, should we start with a little history? Yeah, let's do it. How did it all begin? Well, uh, when my mother was pregnant with my little sister... <laughs> <laughs> I was two, and they asked me, do you want a little brother or a little sister? And according to family lore, my answer was, I want a guitar. Nice. So nice. apparently yes. that's where it started. Nice. 
And uh, I didn't really play much music uh, until my grandmother passed and she had an organ in her house and it came to our house and I sort of gobbled that up and they, my parents got a bigger one and a bigger one and then one with foot pedals and I played keys for a few years and then I, apparently I found a little three-quarter size Norma acoustic guitar under my brother's bed and taught myself to play that and wasn't really much of a strummy guitar guy and took the little two strings off and started playing bass with my Kiss records and whatnot. And nice. And then didn't play anything for a few years and met my twin brother from a different mother, who Mark Jenkins, who played guitar and had a bass and said, here, play this. And how, there, there how, was my home. How old were you when that happened? 18. 18. Uh, summer after I graduated from high school. Nice. Went up to college, UT Martin, not much to do there. Met some guys in the dorms, started playing around. Just so happened there was really only one band in Martin that was professional. And shortly after arriving there, their bass player moved out of town and somebody gave my number and... Here I am, a professional bass player, like five months into playing bass. Nice. And it was great because I, I got to, I wouldn't get to go to parties every weekend. I was at the party <laughs> and I was getting paid. And my buddies who had, you know, sort of jobs around town while they were going to school, I was making as much as, or more, not more than them, but my job was only Friday and Saturday night. I just didn't compete with school. It yeah. was a super fun and great thing to do and and so studying biology during the day and playing music as not at night has been something i've been doing since i was 18 awesome it doesn't seem weird to me it doesn't seem crazy to me it, you know it's what i've always done my entire adult life basically yeah and so to cut the present day you're still doing a, a science uh, day gig so to speak right yeah, biology, absolutely right? i am a i guess technically i, I function as a pathologist assistant at a company called IDEX. Uh, I work in a histology lab and I regularly find myself elbow deep in all kinds of animal part funk and whatnot. <laughs> all for the betterment of pets and farm animals and zoo animals and they send us samples and we send back them a report that lets them know it's an osteosarcoma, it's grade four, your margins are clean whatnot so veterinarians all across the country and zoos and farmers and whatnot we take care of their animals that's amazing you know speaking of pathology we are at Ernstine and hazel's uh, downtown memphis and and a big shout out to them and thank you for letting us use the facility well, i only have one Ernestine and hazel story <laughs> want to hear it? <laughs> we, we, these, the south end was one block away from here where this was this is calhoun and maine front and calhoun was the south end where free world played our very first gigs one block from here yeah it's gone now but uh, noki taylor was our trumpet player way back in the day and we were driving by Ernestine and hazel's one day he looked up and he said see that room right there I lost my virginity in that room to Miss Evelyn's old lady. Uh. <laughs> it's like, okay. Wait, wait. So, Miss Evelyn's old lady? Yeah, Miss Evelyn. Well, Ms. Evelyn Young, who was a very famous Memphis saxophone player, played alto, played with B.B. King. She was very influential back in the day, part of the... Um, the, the Front Street the blues band Forever and Ever. You know, she was... I got her a brass note on Beale Street like two years ago. Oh Well-deserved. And apparently she was a, a lady's lady and her old lady worked here in the upstairs brothel at Ernestine and Hazel's and... So, uh, can we get a year <laughs> on that? Are the yeah, right. <laughs> can, can we get a year on that? What, what is it? When was it? Uh, Noki's about 10 years younger than Herman. So that would have been Noki being born in about 19... 40. So it's Herman so Green, right? It's Herman Green. And yeah. so Noki would have been, that would have been, Noki would have been 15, 16, 17, 18. So somewhere around 55, maybe 1955. Be my guess. That's a, wow. but yeah, we touched on it. Jumping forward, we free world played our first gigs, uh, October of 1987. 
one block from here at the South End. Uh, we were the for the first two weeks we were the Herman Green and Jimmy Ellis Blues Review. Wow. And then uh, we at, at rehearsal we started brainstorming and came up with the name Free World and it stuck because it, it really sort of aptly describes where we were coming from initially and it, what we started with was blues coltrane and the dead you know that's really about all we had between the guys that were in the band it was jimmy ellis and herman green who had pedigrees and a bunch of university of memphis college kids that yeah. were jazz bows and and deadheads so we sort of came together and, and fused it all together in whatever sort of bizarre and you know back in 87 there wasn't really a a jam band scene you know there was the dead and the allman brothers and santana and that was really about it you know and we didn't really have anything to pattern ourselves after we just were what we were we pretty much still are yeah it's what we are which is just you know every band has to have a gimmick right <laughs> we decided a long time ago we were going to have a really strange gimmick a gimmick that nobody else has anymore we were going to be about the music. <laughs> <laughs> artist. We're going to be, and I'm holding my fingers up, quotation marks, artists. We're going to be artists. Well, we never took ourselves that seriously. I don't think. Yeah. You know, take them, taking the music seriously is one thing. Taking yourself seriously is another. Okay, so, so I hope I didn't circumvent some of the history here. So, so you, you, you were in school, and, and you're studying biology, and you're a gigging machine. And then did we already uh, cover how you ended up well, I, I, I dropped, I was in pre-veterinary medicine initially. Okay. I, was, I, I grew up, my parents' backyard is 90 miles of woods, and I was always finding animals that were hurt and bringing them home and fixing them up. And my mom was like, hey, why don't you think about being a veterinarian? Yeah. I, I joined an explorer post. I worked in an animal hospital for many years. I enjoyed it, but I got to Martin, and really the only, you don't even get anywhere near dogs and cats until like halfway through vet sure, school. Sure, And I was going to school at UT Martin, Martin, which is a very rural school. So all you were dealing with up there were cows horses and pigs and frankly unless a cow or a pig is on a plate i didn't really have much interest in it you know but i'm having to i'm in the agr frat with all the the the, the farm boys from northwest tennessee obviously not fitting in very well making great grades yeah. killing it in school but not really and the more i really thought about day in and day out i'll go to the office and give shots to old ladies poodles <laughs> I really enjoyed the surgical aspect of, of veterinary medicine. Oh, and, yeah. and these days, I have a friend who is actually a veterinary surgeon. What she does every day, she goes to work and she performs surgeries from the minute she gets there to the minute she leaves. But back then, there wasn't that sort of specialty. And mm. the majority, they did surgery every afternoon from noon to two, but generally, the majority of their job was was seeing clients with their dogs and talking to them and you know mm -hmm. checking their dog and giving them shots. And I really didn't want to do that. So I dropped out of school, I moved here to Memphis, and started going to Shelby State and got my EMT certification. I drove an ambulance for a little while. Oh my gosh. Also didn't really, I ended up getting paired up with a couple of guys who were, were my job was, I'm an angel. I'm a shard of white light. My job <laughs> is to show up and <laughs> stabilize and transport and get these, you know, my, my job was to make everything okay. Yeah. The dudes I work with job was to put these people in the meat wagon, let's get out of here. And they were jaded, they were older, and I didn't, I, the more I worked with them, the more I was like, this job is also sort of like 60 years of you know, putting people in the meat wagon and heading off to the hospital. And it's like, eh. So I went back to school and all my credits lent themselves mostly to a biology degree, which is what, what I eventually ended up doing. But, all, but when I got back to Memphis from Martin, this was uh, 85 and Beale Street reopened. It had been boarded up and shuttered and there wasn't anything going on for like 20 years or so. Beale oh Street was, was nothing. Well, it, Rum Boogie opened. Um, uh, Handy Hall opened up, which is like above where the police station is now. And Lafayette's Corner, which is the eastern half of Wet Willies. Oh, wow. That's all that was going on. There weren't 
clubs all up and down the street. There wasn't neon everywhere. It was just these people had a, a vision and decided they wanted to try to do something with it. And, and I had heard about it somehow or another. And we, there were guys, uh, in particular, a guy named Alabama and a guy named Uncle Ben, who were old dudes who basically sat on the street and played. Wow. And I would go down there with my little amp and my little bass and plug up and try to hang. And these guys, these were dudes that weren't playing 12 bar blues. It was 13 this time. It was nine the next time. It was 12. Oh, yeah. So they were just, right. they just, yeah. that was authentic old yeah. school blues. And you just kind of had to be elephant eared and try to hang, you know? And that's sort of where I, I would go down there. You know, like I said, I go to school during the day and at night. I, I, I majored in biology, I minored in Beale Street. Awesome. Yeah. So I go down to Beale and then eventually I, I, I was also playing in a band that was based out of Sardis that was 85% rock, 15% country. And I would go drive down there on Friday afternoons and, and we would set up and play gigs and then go ski all day on the lake. And it was really great for a college kid to be playing some gigs, making some money, but also hanging out and having fun. And, but then the keyboard player put out a country single and the band manager, Momager, um, <laughs> had the band go from 85 rock, 15% country the other way, 85% country. 15%, and I just, I couldn't hang with it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the drummer and I came up here to Bill Street and we walked up and down the street trying to see if anybody needed a rhythm section. And the person I met was Don McMinn at Rum Boogie. I walked in there and just was completely, I never heard any music like that really in my life. And it was just like, so I went up to him between sets and he gave me his business card, you know, call me, I'll see what I can do for you. He, he just passed away this yes, year, Yes, he didn't. did. Yeah. And, uh, but he gave me, one of the numbers he gave me was Chris Lee. Chris Lee happened to have a band called Chris Lee and the Moonlight Syncopators that played at Lafayette's Corner right up the street. And yeah. I went there the next week. His bass player happened to be leaving the band. Hey, come up and try. So I got him, played a set with him. I didn't know any of the songs he played. I just jammed with it. And he loved it. It was great. Hired me on the spot. In that band was David Skypeck on the drums. Yeah. Um, Noki Taylor played Trump. No, well, actually, it was about two months later, the horn section didn't show up one night. But Chris had set the mics up anyway. And about halfway through the second set, these two dudes came walking in off the street. I think they'd just been playing up at Handy Hall, walked in, pulled out their horns. It was Herman and Oki. I didn't know him at the time. They walked in and basically <laughs> started playing with us. Yeah. So that's me, David, and Herman, the nucleus of Free World on Beale Street, sort of by happenstance. And then uh, Willie Waldman, who was my buddy from a long time ago, he knew Herman. Herman was kind of his teacher. And... He knew Ross Rice, and I kind of knew Ross, and, and Jimmy played on the street a lot, and Willie was really the catalyst that put the band together initially, and he's the one that got the gig up here at the South End, and we, I don't know if we had a rehearsal before we played the gig or not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we just kind of showed up and started doing that thing, and so happened that all of us coming from different bands and already being sort of connected to a scene, the Free World Tuesday night thing at the South End became a thing, like right off the bat. Yeah. Like just slammed, and we were just jamming, and it was, you know, it was crazy right off the bat, you know, and um it was really an education for me because the rest of them were either seasoned musicians or jazz bows in University of Memphis. And I was, you know, been playing in a country band, sort of, right? You know, <laughs> they're whipping out take five, and I'm like, where's the one? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I, I quickly, I didn't really take, I've never really taken many music lessons. It's, it's osmotic for me. I just kind of soak it up and yeah. listen. And Herman's showed me a few things. I took a couple lessons from, um, Ed Finney actually went and paid him to oh show gosh. me a few things how to walk a bass line here yeah. and there, you know. But mostly it's just been kind of a gleaning things off of people and, and having Ross Rice come up to me at about the fourth or fifth gig at the South End and on the set break and put his arm around my shoulder and say, you know, Richard, somebody in the band's got to play the bass. <laughs> and since you're wearing it, what about you? <laughs> that is, 
<laughs> you know, that, that, that's a loving thing to do. Oh, he, you know, it really he, he meant it, <laughs> and it was necessary, and it, it sort of changed my perspective on, you know, as we were just a jam band somewhat, and I was all over the neck, and but, you know, somebody's got to play the bass, you know, and... The other thing he told me, maybe not during that conversation, but sure around that same time, was we had a conversation about, so music, if you're talking with five people, one person speaks and four people listens, and the person that speaks bounces around the conversation. But in music, everyone's speaking at once. Right. And you've got to integrate your voice in, with everyone else's in a way that's, you know, nice, pleasing, pleasant, you know, in, in some sort of way. And he, what he told me was, you have to listen more than you play. Yeah. You know, and I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> so, Wonderful. you know, it's, it, music is an education. If, 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 you know, again, Herman. So we went when Clint, the guitar player, and Willie and I went down to King's Palace, where Herman was playing regular, another club right down the Gill Street had opened up, and he he was playing, and we went to him and said, "Hey, you know, we we would like for you to just start a band with us." And he said, "I will do this, but you got to be serious about the music." <laughs> And so that's kind of where we came from, you know, taking the music seriously and, you know, delving deep into it and trying to, to find, search, try to find, make it conversational. And I want to be a jukebox. You know, play, you know, even playing the same songs night to night, you know, if someone goes off on some sort of motif in a solo, well, maybe the whole band can follow them. And the next thing you know, and we did a lot of um, impromptu meddling in the early days, primarily because there was a lot of... Um, uh, let's say recreational chemicals floating around, and uh, <laughs> in particular, we would go off on a tangent, and it's time to come back to the song, and invariably, I wouldn't exactly remember what song we had been playing, and so I would go. Like, they were looking at me like, "Here we go back into the song." I'm like, "Okay, we'll go to this song." Because I don't know what you know. So we would songs would go float from this tune to that tune to the other. As a matter of fact, I was told years later that part of the of the scene, part of the reason people came to the gig was, you know, let's see where Richard takes them tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and it frustrated the other guys in the band because I, I wasn't. There were plenty of other bass players in this town who could have, who were much higher musically on a level than I was. But I, I don't know why they they kept me around. But it, it's. Eventually, they all left and left me holding the bag. So. That's great. <laughs> Making medleys, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so we're talking. So, we're, are we are we talking like middle '90s and the '90s now? Is this kind of when this? This is rolling was still in? the band started in '87, and then the band ended in '88. Okay. The band lasted for about uh, almost a year. Yeah. And then it disbanded, and I primarily because I wanted to, I wanted to write. I wanted to put rec, put a record out. I wanted the band to be an original band. I wanted, and everyone else wasn't really pretty much interested in writing songs. Mm. And so I put together a side project that ended up taking over. Free World just sort of fizzled. And um, it, it was a lot of, even as now, there was a lot of turnover. The band, personnel-wise, changed a lot. And it got to a point that I think like the drummer left and we didn't find an immediate drummer to take his place. And a gig or two got missed. And then the whole thing kind of fell down the stairs. And, but I'd already put together the side project called Mosaic that we were doing nothing but our own music. That's all we were doing. Writing and playing our own music, which was really great for like the the nine people that showed up on a regular basis. <laughs> right. to hear us. You know, it was, they really seemed to love it. And then about, I don't know, maybe two and a half years into that, I ran into Willie at a party and we came up with, why don't we take the originals from Mosaic and all the covers we were doing from Free World and put it back together and 
And, and the, the legend of free will had grown in the two years since it had been gone. So when it came back together, it was again like this wah thing that happened and, and it exploded. And Free World's debut album was really Mosaic's greatest hits, with a, <laughs> yes. basically. And uh, and we just kept rolling from there. You know, that, and then that the first record came out in '94. Right. Now, now we're, we're the, I've, I've been told the 90s were a, somewhat of a golden era. There was all of, of kinds Street, of music. Well, not just the Beale Street, but you know, the Midtown scene and all. There was so much. It, here's how you could tell it was, it was such a hotbed at that point in time. There were flyer wars. You know, because there was there wasn't any sort of you know online anything right. at that point. That you had to go the, around. That was the social. You media. had to go around yeah. and tack your stuff on a telephone pole. Yeah, and you know another band would put their stuff over yours, and you'd put yours over theirs, and it was this, <laughs> this whole you know flyer wars that happened between all these bands around. You know, and that that's how you could tell. Like, really, how you could tell it was because the the poster the, the telephone poles were covered. You know, all the time with you know layers and layers of stuff because there was so many gigs going on, so much wow. creativity and things happening, and people you. Know, know it was yeah it was somewhat of a golden era I yeah agree. all right so so free world is back together they're jamming along um and you've talked about like as, as any band well how long so up to now free world has been in existence for 20 30, 30, 31 30 years 31 years we just passed our 30th anniversary this past october so we're working right. on 31 i mean that, that's that's amazing right i mean that that, that, that that's equal to some i mean that's it that, well, yeah, I mean, it, I mean that that smokes most marriages, right? <laughs> <laughs> How many bands last thirty days? I mean, you know, thirty years—it's almost impossible oh to my, conceive oh of. You know, I don't, and I don't know. I I vacillate back and forth between whether this is a truly honorable, amazing accomplishment, or have I am I just beating this dead horse straight onto China, just like all the way through the earth? You know, <laughs> I don't, you know, but I the, the way I sort of counter that in my mind is well, we have yet to become a tribute act to ourselves. We keep putting out new records. We keep yeah. you know, being oh, creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We keep pushing forward. We're not just living on our, the laurels of the 90s. You know, we keep... And as a matter of fact, I've, I believe, I've been told by people who I trust their judgment, you know, we just released a new record last October right. that's widely considered to be our best work. And, you know, if you're, if you're not just moving forward, but putting out better work than the last work, you know, right. as you move forward is, is the definition of... of you know, of, of being worthwhile, I guess. Yeah, you know? wonderful. Now, um, your house gig, uh, speaking of Beale Street, at Blue City Cafe. Blue City. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's in the 20s, right? That you've been there. We've missed somewhere in the vicinity of 12 Sundays since 91. Since 91. So that's, what, 27 years? Yeah, yeah, remarkable. And, that, and that's where I first met you guys, I believe. Yep. Yeah, Blue City, that's right. Um, I first met you in Starville, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You still play Dave's. <laughs> Dave Star Course. Yeah, it was 99. So uh, is, there, is there any, like, uh, in, in your travels, in, in being uh, a, a homegrown, uh, an institutional band in Memphis, are there... Uh, uh, are we institutional? Do, well, we need, I, do we need to be institutionalized? <laughs> institutionalized. <laughs> I mean, being like... like uh, uh, who? Uh, who comes to mind immediately as far as people uh, or instances or people that you've met in, in being in Memphis? And I, I know you've mentioned before that Blue City is, is somewhat of a magnet of uh, people coming to the Orpheum. Uh, I mean, a lot of industry people know that. I mean, I, I, I tell everyone. Yeah, everybody uh, we see here. Yeah, right any, here. anyone that I meet uh, on a Sunday, like, hey, come 10 o'clock. If you're not doing anything, you need to go down to Blue City and check out Free World. Um, t- tell me some stories regarding just, just of, of having that 
a house gig and what that's afforded you guys? Well, first off, we wouldn't have that gig if it weren't for Dr. Herman Green. Right. I mean, that, that the place was originally owned by um, uh, George Eldridge and his son, George Paul. You know, George Paul, the, the band box was sort of George Paul's playpen. You know, mm-hmm. the the place made and maybe still makes enough money off the restaurant that 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 the bar is you know it, it, at that point anyway. George Paul had whatever he wanted there, the music he liked. That's why we got the backup Levon there. That's why he had the yeah. K Brothers play. That's why whatever he wanted, he was music. But their perception of that room was they really wanted it to be, I guess, similar to Preservation Hall on Bourbon Street. They wanted this club to be the place where all the old guys would always have a home. And Herman was in our band. Yeah. So he wanted us to play on a regular basis because he wanted Herman to always have a home. Yeah. So no, 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 t- t- Tell our audience a little bit more about Herman. Kind of Dr. Herman Green was born in 1930 um, here in Memphis. He went to Booker T. Washington High School. His grandmother taught him piano at a young age. He picked up the saxophone. His first gigs on Beale Street, he was 15, playing with uh, Finest Newborn Seniors Big Band. He was sort of discovered, if you would, by Rufus Thomas, who had the amateur nights at, at, down on Beale many years ago, the old Daisy. And then uh, a young Riley King happened to come to, to Beale Street and try to, to make his way. And uh, Rufus hooked Riley up with Herman and uh, put his first band together. Yeah. Shortly thereafter, Riley became B.B., and uh, so Herman was B.B. King's very first saxophone player in 1947. Mm. Herman moved to New York for a spin and uh, ended up hooking up with Lionel Hampton and toured with him for several years in the late 50s, early 60s. Wow. Uh, he moved out to California, San Francisco, and was the band leader for a club called the Black Hawk. And this gig was uh, was like midnight to 5 a.m. Uh, yeah. And when all the, the, the heavy cats came to San Francisco to play their gigs, well, after their gig at, at the municipal hall, they all came to the, to the Blackhawk. So Herman got to hang with Miles Davis, yeah. John Coltrane, Sammy Davis Jr., you know, Frank Sinatra, all, you know, Sarah, everybody. He was, he was the house band leader of the place where everybody, all the jazz boats went. You know? Wow. So and then eventually he came back here to Memphis. He was the um, head of the jazz studies department in Lamont and Owen for many years. Of course, all the while, he has Herman Green in the Green Machine, which is much like Free World, an incubator of talent. And he's had, you know, he had three of the greatest piano players of all time come through his band. Uh, James Williams, Mulgrew Miller, and Donald Brown. Oh, my goodness. All came through his band and went to New York and became yeah, serious people. Became those guys. Right. Yeah. And, and, and countless other hundreds of, of guys that over the years played with Herman and Green in the Green Machine. And, and he's... Uh, not wasn't just a teacher and an educator at Lamont and Owen, but he's a teacher and educator in life. Yeah, and and I've been playing with him you know regularly since 1986. He's my father died in '95. He became my dad. Mm. Musically, he taught me, you know, not just about music, but life and business and music business and how to deal with a crowd and how to deal with a club owner and how you know <laughs> how how to drink and you know <laughs> he's he, you know he's he's the man. You know, yeah. when we were first went to him to have him help us start the band, 
we we were just a bunch of you know college kids. We needed somebody in the we were it had enough inside it, even at that point to know we needed somebody in the band had some street cred, a, a mentor. We needed somebody in the band that that when I went to a club to try to book a gig. Oh, by the way, Herman's in, oh Herman's in the band. Oh, well, you know, sure, come on in. You know, it wasn't just a bunch of, of idiot college kids. It was you know, oh, Herman Green. Oh, well, you know, sure, come on in. Yeah. So he's the mentor. He's the band's daddy-o. He's the spiritual and musical center of where we come from and where we've been. You know, that's fantastic. So and, and so we wouldn't be playing this at the North, excuse me, Blue City Cafe if it wasn't for Herman's foot in the door in the first place. Right. Right. <clears throat> and through that, you know, I'm I, I've kept a list. I don't have it on me right now, but the list is extensive and long and the people who have wandered in primarily a lot of times during music fest when they've played down on the river but they wander up to Beale Street because they want to and, and if they ask anybody hey can we sit in with the band they get pointed to go find Free World you know yeah. the, those are the guys that the, you can sit in with them it'll be fine you know Doobie Brothers uh, Counting Crows the drummer for Prince the drummer for for Leonard Skinner the, you know I mean the, and, and every you mentioned it every it's probably about 15 or 20 of, of the touring Broadway musical acts that, that go to the Orphan. When they, when they finish on Sunday, their week or two week run, either they get in a bus and leave immediately or they have a rap party and it's Sunday night. Yeah. And there's only one place they can end up. Yeah. And so we always, when I recognize, I look out in the crowd and these people, first off, you see the dancers, right? These girls ain't dancing like Memphis people, right? <laughs> these girls are professional dancers, right? And, and, and so I tried, you know, oh, y'all from Orpheum? We need to get some of y'all up here to play, right? You know, so and the juxtaposition of, of Broadway and Beale Street is such a unique thing because they can, these people can sing. Right. You know, they sing correctly. They, they enunciate their words. And we're playing soul music, and they're singing, they're enunciating their words. <laughs> and it makes this whole juxtaposition of, I'm a soul man. You know, and it's, and it's right and it's correct and it's pitch perfect, but it's, it's lacking something, you know, and, and, but they love it. And they're, you know, they're having, but what really is great is if you can get any of the guys from the orchestra pit who have been stuck on this tour, who are playing this gig. You know, with their asleep because they've done the same show twice a day for four years right. and they're crazy, right? You know, <laughs> but they get, oh, they, we can sit in. <laughs> you know, you get those guys on stage and they completely lose it. They cut loose and go wild because they're amazing musicians, right? Oh, yeah. But they've been yeah, stuck in a cage. So if you can get those guys on stage, <laughs> that's really beautiful. Oh. But yeah, the Blue City thing has just been, it's, you know, we cornered the market on Sundays many years ago. There's really nothing else going on in town at all. <clears throat> late night, late night. There's a lot that goes on early. There's, you know, Memphis Jazz Orchestra. There's a really great band that plays at Ernestine and Hazel's. Yeah. But, 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 but after that's over, the, the late thing this to do is, true. is, this is, is, true. No, is, is you, come down to be. And then if you ask, if, if you're staying at a hotel, <laughs> you can always edit this. That's cool. <laughs> if, if, you go to, if you're staying in a hotel in late, Lakeland, you ask the concierge, well, what do we do on Sundays? They're going to say, oh, you need to go on to Beale Street. There's oh, a band yeah. that plays on the corner. Yeah. They're great. So it, it, it's, it's been a magnet. It's been a joy. It's been an incubator. It's, it's, a, it's a stepping stone. We've had a lot of guys come through this band that have moved on to, you know, Art Edmiston, you know, moved from our band to playing with, with uh, Little Milton, to, to playing with Mofro, to playing with Greg Allman. You know, yeah. I mean, guys from our band of... Um, Dave Aaron, our sound guy from back in '88, is you know he's done killing everything it. Snoop Dogg ever put out. Sublime, uh, J Lo, you know, Prince. You know, yeah. he, he's you know people have come through our band and gone on to much bigger and greater things. Which I'm, you know, I, you know, when I was younger, 
perhaps world domination was a bit of a goal. Right. But really, as as I've gotten older, I'm more than happy to to watch people come through the band and you go dominate the world. You know. Yeah. I'm good. I got a good job. I've got a. I, if I even were to go off on tour for a few a weeks, a month, two months, I'd come back and all my regular gigs are gone. And I may have had a great experience. You know, I I, I got asked to be part of of Grand Funk. You know. Yeah. Right. And, but I, I I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. I'm I'm medium sized fish in a, in a medium sized pond. I'm I'm good with that. I, I I found my space. The band found its space around that. And. Um, it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, as far as defining success, that 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 can go down a bunch of rabbit holes. But Absolutely. I, I think I think definitely. I mean, yeah, of what you've been able to experience and what you experience today is a level of, of success that even uh, world touring acts probably don't get to enjoy long term. Longevity. Longevity. It, it, it in and of itself. Um, it, that is success in, yeah. in a way. Yeah, well, you oh know, I mean, we, we've never. I, I don't know that I ever wanted to be, you know, the Rayful Dead or or Bruce Springsteen. You know, not that I wouldn't mind having the bank account, but mm-hmm. and not that that wouldn't solve some problems I have now, but it would create a whole other set of problems. You know, and and I, I I enjoyed watching my sons grow up and being here for them. And I right have on. friends of mine who right now are sort of in that intermediate level where they're living in a bus or a van and they're touring around all the time. And it's and they're you know they're, they're loving it, but their kids are growing up without them. Kind yeah. Of thing. yeah, you know. So and they have no you know they, that van gets in a wreck. There you know there's no four hundred one k. There's no insurance. There's you know unless you marry up and your wife is cool with you traveling around the country all the time in a van with a bunch of stinky dudes. You know you, you're in trouble. You know life requires some some bit of stability not just for your band but for you and your life right. if you're a family person and, right. and uh, you know I, I think launch you know there's there's a brass note on Beale Street that yes has free world on it yes and um, to, to you know, talk about that how, 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 did, how did that come about well let me put it this way there's I don't know how many countless Grammy awards there are out there in the world but there's only 148 brass notes on Beale Street Right on, and you know it's it's Sam and Dave and it's Isaac Hayes and it's you know Booker T and the MGs and you know Eddie Floyd and Free World, <laughs> you know yeah, and that's a rarefied air yeah, and to have your band name or logo engraved in a hunk of metal and that hunk of metal embedded in a rock that people are going to walk over for the next thousand years or whatever you know and wonder who were they you know <laughs> but you yeah. know somewhere along the line that that that's and then re- this past month, as a matter of fact, uh, the second uh, stone in, in forever, um, Robert Gordon released a new book, and there's a, there's a free roll reference in a book. Yeah, you know, magazines and articles and newspapers. That's all one thing, but a book. That's that uh, to me. That's 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 forever. You know, yeah. and the ballad we've touched people's hearts and minds and, and lives and, and booties for a long time, <laughs> and, uh, and and that's a great thing. But that brass note on the street, which you know, it, it it's it's it, it it touches the inside of you in a way that to walk over that, look down at that, to know people are going to be looking at that forever. Yeah, I mean, that, was was that a surprise, or did you see that coming, or how how did um, that? Well, as I think, it really was the owners of Blue City who who lobbied for that. Yeah, and uh, as Kevin Kane told me one time. Probably in the entire history of Beale Street, hundred and some odd, however many years there's been a Beale Street, and, and as an entertainment place, and we're you know back in the day when it was 
hookers and gamblers and bootleggers and whatnot and, and music. Um, there's probably never been a band play, a, a consistent band play a consistent club for as long as we have in the history of the street. You right. Know, that's w- whether or not we've ever become anything outside of that. That in and of itself is, you know, that's that's more than any, no, no one else can say that. Yeah. Kind of thing. So let's let's, sure. let's let's get. And if you, our brass note has our logo, and underneath it it says every Sunday night. Oh, that's like our legacy on Beale Street is every Sunday night. You know, we we played every stage there is on on the street more than once, but but that's that's our legacy. That's our home. That's where we live. That's where we belong, and um, and that's where we we do what we want. You know, we play a lot of the other clubs, and we we, you know you kind of have to be somewhat of a. There are people that come to Beale Street from all over the world, true, every day, and they come there for a certain thing. They're looking, it's Mecca, and they want to hear, you know, every, the cradle of Western musical civilization is on Beale Street, you know. Right. The combination of the the blues and the gospel and the country and the and the rock, you know, all, all the cre- rock and roll basically was created there and went, you know. So people come to Beale Street and they want to hear the blues. They want to hear all that classic Memphis soul music. They, they, and, and we give that to them somewhat, at least initially. Yeah, let's sort of walk them from here to end, end up. Well, in Blue City, we 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 sort of take that left turn a little earlier. But a lot of the other clubs, we sort of end up sticking more close to the program, you know, because right. it, I'm I'm under no illusion that part of playing music anywhere is is selling beer, <laughs> you know. Part of my job is to make sure that the club justifies my existence there, that they make right. enough money to to pay me and to pay their overhead costs and their you know it's it's all. Something that I think a lot of the younger musicians don't necessarily clue into right. so is is that you know it's not it's not just necessarily entirely all about the music. You also have to be a jack of all trades. You've, somebody's in the band's got to be an artist, or you got to know somebody to draw some posters and make some stuff online. You got to figure out how to market yourself. You've got to you got to put you got to put butts through the turnstile. You got to put money in the pocket of the guy who hired you. Yeah, you know, there's there's a bunch of things that you got to consider that are above and beyond. Well, we got some really cool tunes. Okay, uh, I, and, and, and I, I've worked with you uh, um, now for about three years. Uh, we had a, we had a church gig together. It's fabulous, by the way. And and you're I've, a great band leader, by the way. Well, thank you, but and you are as well, which I want to talk about. Uh, and I've teased you, and I've said if I if I ever was teaching, if I ever had a music education gig, and we came to the part of music business, I, I would have you come in and just spend the whole day talking about work ethic and what it, what it means to be a working musician. And and could you just take a moment to speak to the up and coming musician who is now maybe thinking of considering of, of at least pursuing some type of of paying gig or supplemental gig or actually gigging. Speak, speak to that mindset. I, I have, I guess, officially mentored a few people. I was on the board of the Recording Academy for a long time here in Memphis, and they set me up with some people. And one of the first questions I would ask them is sort of, is is you being, your eventual goal, if you end up being anything less than Justin Timberlake, is that a failure to you? <laughs> you know, because if, yeah. if that's really... I think American Idol and, and that kind of stuff has sort of ruined people's perception of of, of, of paying dues, of right. working your way to be, to, you, you know, you got you to get someplace. You got to know how to get there. And, uh, you know, you got to be a hustler. And it really, initially, first off, it's got to, you, you, you have to need to do it because you need to do it. Right. You don't have to need to do it because you want to be rich and famous. 
It's because right. more than like, and I don't ever want to discourage anyone because the guy I'm talking to, my little mentor, he, he might end up being the next Stevie Wonder, and I don't want to squash his dreams. But at the same time, you got to sort of impart to people there's a decent possibility that 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 might not happen for you. You got to be happy enough with with your your spiritual outpouring of, of music as as a part of your soul to be happy with maybe you landing somewhere in, in the middle ground, you know, and, uh, and, it, but in, even in order to land in the middle ground where I, I think I'm for, sort of firmly planted, mm-hmm. um, you, you got to hustle and it, it, you, you can't let up. And, you know, you say no to a gig. If you, people call you up, you get to the point that somebody's calling you for a gig and you say no enough times, they're going to stop calling. Right. You know, you got to say Yes. You got to play some gigs, maybe in some clubs. Maybe you don't really want to go to. Maybe you're just tired. You don't. I mean, there's some Sundays that I'm just, you know, gee, I'm burned. You know. Yeah. But you got to get up and go play your gig. You got to have a work ethic. You got to go. You know, it, it, as much as it's a, it's a, it's a joy and an, an amazing honor to get to play. You know, it's is this a job? Yeah. You got to haul gear around. You got to know how to set that gear up. You got to have done some marketing online or however you're going to do it to get some people to come to your gig. You gotta, you gotta have had some rehearsals. The guys gotta know what they're doing. You gotta deal with. I gotta deal with personnel issues, and so this guy can't make the gig. And who am I gonna get to cover for that? And, you know, there's, there's guys in my band that show up and whip out the trumpet. And they play the gig, and it's all great. It's gravy, you know, and all the other stuff it takes to get to that point that they never have to think about. Right. I have to think about, you know, and it's, um, I guess, really ultimately, there's a drive, an internal drive that you have to sort of push through and beyond and for. To uh, because you not just because you want to do it, because you have to do it. Yeah. Because you need to, and not because you know your wife's bugging about where's the cash. You got to need to do it because your soul is not going to be quenched unless you connect with your your boys and, and girls and 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 make this this illusionary magical thing called music that 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 moves people somehow that they they want to keep coming back because it's not just you're not just a jukebox. And now we can sort of get into the music of it. You know, you you got to rehearse and you got to have a show and you got to know what's going on. But also, if you're going to have people come night after night, right. it can't be the same show. Right. You burn them out. You burn yourself out. You've got to keep bringing in new tunes and kick out the ones that don't work or rework the ones that you know maybe you've done too many times and need to just or create some medleys or you know you've got to think. It, it, it's it, as emotive as it is. It's also very mental. It's as spiritual as it is. It's also physical. Somebody's got to haul that gear around. You know, and that, that, that PA ain't going to jump out of the van into the club by itself. You know? so, so what I'm so, hearing so far is that maybe some people may be surprised at the amount of effort. <laughs> you think? That, that goes into to creating a, a successful... Uh, uh, even a local band. It's, a, a, you know, a, a, and something that people would want to come listen to to take some effort. We're not even talking about the, the people that tour and all the, the, the realities of dealing with, with, with the road and hotels and vans and flat tires and stolen gear and showing up at a club and you don't have a gig there when your manager said you do double book you know, you know this yeah, that's not even talking about that just just at, at the local level there's there's a lot more that goes on to it than I'll show up and play some tunes dude you know <laughs> it's, you know as far as the local levels I mean like you know we, we, we mentioned earlier it's the 30th year of free world and you've been gigging longer than that or in the in this area so any any changes that you've noticed in, in the Memphis scene, uh, you know, be it economic, be it 
Well, the money hasn't Alan changed or, much. <laughs> so getting paid the same. Herman's getting paid the same as he was in 1964. So. <laughs> the scene in general, anything you want to say. Well, today, yeah, here's yeah. here's the thing about that too. Um, you're going to get what you deserve as a band. If you're bringing in a bunch of people every night to your the club is packed. They're selling beer hand over fist. The the the, the guy at the door's got money falling out of his pocket. You gonna get paid? Yeah. Uh, if you're playing to the bartender and your girlfriend and her best friend and that's it, you're going to get paid what you're worth then too. Yeah. And a lot of bands will complain a lot about, you know, well, we, we're not getting paid, you know, we're, we're, we're not getting paid enough to play these clubs. Well, you know, the question is, are you justifying your existence when you're there? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, changes. Uh, the music has changed a lot because when we started in the 80s, it was a lot of... Uh, you know, flock of seagulls. I mean, like, like I said, Free World has never pretty much been very mindful of any kind of trends musically. You know, we just kind of have been what it is we are. But the music has certainly changed around us. You know, there and the crazy thing about Memphis is most music towns have a specific thing, right? Sure. Yeah. Like, you know, Athens is, you know, alternative music and Seattle is grunge and you know, Nashville's country. And well, Memphis has has redefined itself over and over again at one point you know way back in the day it was you know it was a, a jug band town and at one point it became a rockabilly town and then it was a soul town then it was a rap town and, and you know and there's also been this thing there's undercurrents that go on all the time this town has a pretty heavy a pretty pretty intense heavy music scene there's a bunch of hard rock bands in this town you know and it's, it's a hotbed for that and uh, so uh, the focus of Memphis as, as a music town during the course of our band's life, so I've certainly watched it sort of mutate and rotate around us. Uh, and it's changed a lot. And, and it also sort of ebbs and flows. Right now is a bit of an ebb, I think, as far as the number of live bands are to choose from. We've had some clubs we play have sort of stopped having live music because they can't really find mu- bands that aren't running people out of their club as opposed to bringing people in. Wow. You know? And uh, you, when you get away from the hot spots, you know the the, the Beale Street and and and, and um, Cooper Young and or Overton Square. When you get away from, you know, you start getting out in outlying areas and sort of just your because you know, most most towns don't have what we have either. You know, right? You move to Phoenix and there's a couple of bars here and there, but there's not like a strip where there's 15 bands playing seven nights a week. You know, there, that's really a boon for musicians in this town. Is there is a lot of work. Right, you know, and if you're willing to to hustle, if you if you put together a show that people want to come see, and and you can find someone to hire you, and you can prove your worth, and start, you know, it's it's not that hard. I don't think to get something going. There's a lot of places, you know, and I'm thinking the high tone in particular, also incubators of of long young. They give young bands an opportunity to play that that can get get a foothold. Get a few gigs under their belt. Start going to other places. Hey, well, we played a few gigs here, you know. And, and you need, you know, because you can't just start off playing Rum Boogie, right? You know, mm-hmm. you, you've got to sort of make your way around from the from the the, the outskirts to, to the inner circle. And Memphis has a lot of outskirts. Yeah, and there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, I don't know. I think also the the advent of of computers and uh, and other things to occupy people's minds, you know. Uh, because becoming a musician um, requires some work. Yeah, you know, you've got to, if, if not lessons wise, you got to sit in your room for a long period of time and learn your instrument and figure out how to make noise with it, right. and eventually go find some other people who can make similar noise and then try to integrate your noises together. And so, you know, it's uh, it, it 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 takes 
time and energy and wherewithal and intent. And I think a lot of young people, I think the world kind of has ADD these days. And if, if, it, if you can't get sort of immediate gratifi gratification from something, you know, right off the bat, <clears throat> it falls by the wayside. You go to the next thing, you know. And so I, I think music, learning how to play a guitar or a bass or keyboards, or drums, I think a lot of kids, they're eh, not spending a lot of time doing that these days. So that's where I, I'm, I'm seeing a bit of a, of a dearth of live music is I don't think there's a lot of, of younger people who are picking that up as, as a, it's not hip and cool like mm. it was earlier, you know, I think. There are other things. The world is too fast. Yeah. This is fantastic. It really is. Do we need to take a break at all, man? I, 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 I think that was the key for the lull. Is that the key for the lull? <laughs> so that's about the time we got up, went downstairs, freshened up, came back upstairs, and finished our interview with Richard. Check it out for part two. So if you could unpack what you said about um, bands possibly driving crowds away. If I, can, I didn't write that one down, but... I mean, can, can, are, are crowds fickle? I mean, are, they always will be. Maybe they always are. And, and is, is it, uh, uh, I mean, is, is the glass half empty, half full? Do you blame? Is it the creative scene? Is it the crowd? Is it well, uh, like, yeah, I, I, not to pass blame necessarily, but like just finding a solution or. Cable TV is yeah. to blame. <laughs> Netflix is to blame. I like Netflix. Um, you know, I, I generally, I see a lot of things on social media, Facebook somewhat, people complaining about various aspects of music in general, Memphis music in particular, Beale Street specifically. Um, for me, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Mm -hmm. I got into it and this band was created so long ago that we sort of circumvented a lot of the problems that other musicians have. And, um, you know, I, we don't, not that I would disparage anyone in any way, but we don't play gigs for the door, you know? And people who complain about not getting paid enough or we played this place and they, they ripped us off. And when I, I think um, musicians not having a, a, a solid explanation of what's gonna happen before they get there, you know, lack of, this, another culprit in all this is uh, Tennessee is a right to work state and the union is, is toothless here. And so there's, there's no one really to go to if a club owner bends you over at the end of the night and, you know, the place was packed and he gives you 30 bucks and it was $5 a hit. Well, and, you know, some of that is to be expected, frankly. I mean, club owners, I mean, how many club owners you know that have not been unscrupulous in some sort of way? Not, and not, again, not that I would disparage anyone, but there's, um, as a band, you got to watch out for you. Right, you know, and if your part of your take is coming off the door, you better have your own person at the door. You right. know, you have the person from the club checking the IDs, but you're if, if the money coming out the door is your money, you need to be the you need to be the person responsible for making sure that money gets to the band. You know, and a lot of bands, you know, well, that's maybe hiring somebody else I don't really want to hire. Or, you know, and, and then also but, let me spit. But you've also, as, as you mentioned earlier, you, you've you have a track record of showing yourself valuable to club owners. Well, the club owner is not you hiring you to show up and play for their regulars. They're hiring you to bring your people there so mm -hmm. they sell more beer than they would if you weren't there. And people will, people will, will disagree with that, right? Uh, there's been some famous I, little, little Facebook or, or social media blurbs of how uh, artists crabbing about clubs. Like, it's up to the club owner to to facilitate this event well but 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 you would but really i mean i think it's a little bit of both i've, well, I've, well, I've here, seen I've, that argument but I've, I've, oh yeah i've yeah. worked in bars 
I've been a day manager bartender of a bar. I've hired and fired bands. And it, frankly, if, if I were a club owner, it would, it, it would be like this. Uh, I will advertise for you in my weekly um, blurb in the Memphis Flyer. I will give you a case of beer. I'll feed you guys. I'm going to put my guy at the door to, um, to, to check IDs, and everything else is yours. If you bring in 5,000 people at the door and you charge them 10 bucks a piece and you leave with $50,000, great for you. I'll have a great bar night. You'll have a great door night. Everybody be happy. You bring in your mom and your sister and you make you know, you know 35 cents a piece, that's on you. Now, I don't know that I would work for me. <laughs> right. but, but as a club, I, I understand no, the club yeah, owner's perspective yeah, sure. of, you know, I'm not hiring you to come in here and play for, for, for Shaggy and, and Billy and, and Johnny who are sitting at the bar here every night anyway. I'm hiring you. I'm paying you 500 bucks or however much I'm paying you. And, and I've always heard that the equation is three times. Whatever the bar is paying you, they have to bring in three times that amount of money to justify you being there. Mm. They have to pay you the 500 bucks. They have to bring in 500 bucks to cover the, their overhead, their rent, their bartenders, their security, their, the restocking of their bar, right. and another third for a profit. For right. them, so if, if, if whatever you expect to be paid, you have to be contributing to that three times the amount you're getting paid, or they're not going to have you back because you know maybe there's somebody else they can have back that will will bring in a bunch of people. You know, you you have to be a partner. You know, in 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 the economy, the economics of what's going on in in, in the venue. You you can't just be expected to show up and you you, you know. Frankly, the club owner doesn't care if you get up on stage and fart in the mic. Yeah. If you're bringing in 500 people to watch you do that, the club owner's happy. If you're not bringing in people to justify your existence, you know you've you've got a marketing problem, or you've got a or or or, or what you're providing isn't isn't value. You know what what you you've and I don't. There's all kinds of music that's great. I don't really. I'm not saying any one kind of music is better than another. But I'm saying what you do has to appeal to a certain you know, demographic of people who are willing to spend money to come hear you play on a semi or regular basis in order for you to maintain your existence or it's not going to last very long. Right. You know, and, and I, when I was, I, I, I was the chairman of the, the, the musicians advisory council to the Memphis and Shelby County music commission for several years. And I had meetings once a month and I had people come in and we talked about a lot of these issues. You know, and, and a lot of people would basically what you said before. Well, no, it's you know that's not my job. My job is to be an artist. It's the club owner's job to pack the club. It's like, well, not exactly. Mm. You know, I mean, and maybe in some places that maybe you're going to a college town and you know you're driving to Starkville and this club is packed every night and it's, maybe that is their job somewhat. But you know, if you're a local band and you're playing you know the same six, seven, eight, nine, ten places every month over and over again you've got to be offering something to get people to come see you on a regular basis or you're going to find yourself the seven or eight nine ten places you play on a regular basis will start whittling themselves themselves down to five and six and three or four because club, clubbers are not going to continue so, to pay you more money than they're making it's not going to happen and so some some nights we'll maybe we'll play in at a bar and it's it, it's it's cold as heck and it starts snowing and and the people that are there leave and there's nobody there i know i'm going to make a lot more money in the long run by playing a little ball with the club owner why don't we cut out of here early why don't you pay us half the money we'll see you next month they're more than happy to do that and that also gives them a favorable view of well this 
this man knows how to play the game. Yeah. You know, instead of me walking in, I insist that I make my full amount of money, you know. You, you might hit that once or twice, but you're going to make a lot more money over 30 years playing ball than you're going to be walking in being a diva, you know. And, and we, Free World's only really ever had one rule for the band. No divas in the band. Mm. Nobody. You know, you, you, you got to have... We're, we're, we take the music seriously. We don't take ourselves seriously, and that's right. you know. But there's there is a business being run here too, and it's not. You can be an artist all you want. Here's the problem. Here's one of the problems. Most artists, most musicians, are not business people. That's why I'm. You know, you, you get that. to a certain the next level. You get up to bands have management. But right. if you don't have a band manager, if you're at a local level and you're managing yourself, you have to understand that there's there's a business going on here and there's tickets being sold and there's merch. You know, there's, there's, there's stuff going on that's financial. It's not just all about the artist. And, and, and if you're lucky enough to have somebody to take care of all that for you, yeehaw, you know, fine, create. Do nothing but create. Be that guy. Yeah. But if you don't have that, you got to be that. And that's going to involve cutting some deals. It's going to be involved being a little over here, some of that. I wash your hand, you wash mine. You know, you gotta, you gotta play a game. Yeah. And, and unless you want to, unless you're not really particularly interested in, in anything long term. And then, you Let, know. Let's switch it up real quick. Uh, I know uh, in, in making your latest record CD, what, what are we calling it nowadays? Recording your latest recording. That that you you, you we didn't get to talk a whole lot about it, but about it. But you expressed. Uh, pretty much sheer delight in, in this latest project. Is that was that true? Absolutely. So, so let, let, walk us through the, the the latest Free World recording. The the last record we put out before this one, uh, as far as original music, came out in 2008. Jim Dickinson produced it. It was a beautiful experience. We did it down in his studio in, in Mississippi, and the the stories he told while we were cutting yeah, it. Yeah, and now, the whole J- Jim's a legend. Of, Jim is right. He, of course, he passed away in 2009, but he's still here. Yeah, he's just dead. He's not gone. Nah. And. Uh, that was I mean he's he's one of the greats of, of Memphis and and, and for, for the vibe and yeah. for the experience and for the, the stories and for you know the knowledge and the, the musicality and you know we we wanted so bad to work with him and we're so fortunate to get to you know yeah. and both his sons Luther and Cody played on the record as well and we had uh, the Masqueraders come down. I had a bunch of people. It was a big guest record thing. It was awesome. And the next record we put out was in 2012, our 25th anniversary. And that was sort of a greatest hits along with the DVD that we produced. Mm. But then we didn't we haven't really put out a, another album of original material since 2008. And this came out in, in, in 2017. So that's a pretty long chunk of time. Our first record was uh, 94, then 96, then 99, then 03, then 08. So it was like it was two years, three years, four years, five years, and then nine years. And part of that was, as I mentioned before, our band has mutated a lot. Uh, in particular, personnel-wise, we have people come and people go. And that's uh, in some ways difficult to deal with, in some ways uh, beautiful and necessary. How many you people know? have come through Free World? Well, think? I also have that list. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and if you played a whole, not, not sat in, you played a whole gig start to finish and got paid, or did something on an album, you know that it's in the hundreds, 250, 270, something like that. Oh, People wow. who have, who if you if you came to a free world gig, and and this guy played trumpet from the beginning, and as far as they're concerned, this guy was a band member. You know, so that it, it's it's extensive. But as far as core band members, I don't know. That's maybe 60, 70, something like that. Gosh, maybe still right. And uh, and and that that changes a lot. And we had the same. Um, primary guitar player for most of our, our albums, um, Brian Overstreet. And then he left in 
2010, I think. And we went through a series of, of guitar players, all great players and great guys, but we never found the time to write together. I, I'm, I'm one of the primary writers. David Skypeck, our former drummer, our primary lyricist, and between me and him and whoever's been the guitar player has always been sort of the core of the writing team of the band pretty much since the beginning. And um, we never, all of our guitar players, were, we just never either found the time or they weren't the right guy or it just, it just never happened. We never, it, for whatever reason, spiritual, musical or otherwise, it just didn't happen. Well, when Andy Tate joined the band, it, it, it coalesced again, you know. And um, so if you don't want to become a tribute act to yourself, you have to continue to be creative. Right. And uh, we decided we wanted to put another record out. And so the first step in, in making a record is writing some songs. <laughs> you know, you can't go record stuff if you don't have original material. You know, and some people make and go to the studio and, and create in the studio. For me, I like to test drive songs. Mm -hmm. I want to write them and take them to Blue City and see if, do they work or not. Because, you know, and also songs tend to grow. You write them in a room somewhere and you play them a few times. But then you get live and, and you, you can tell. The, and, you know you serve the song you know you don't you don't you try to keep your ego out of it and you try to do what what the song tells you it needs you know sometimes you're in the middle of a gig and you can just tell this section needs to expand you know yeah. or this 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 part's too long this, the bridge needs to be here and this the this this modulation at the end was just a bad idea you know and and if you do that in the studio and you never test drive it live you're gonna there's gonna be some missteps i think right. so we've always kind of wanted to write songs and write too many and and test drive them all live and then figure out which ones work the best and then go to the studio and record those. Mm -hmm. So step one, number one, write some songs. <laughs> and then, um, you know, there's a lot of options these days. You can go to anybody's house right. and cut a record these days. <clears throat> or you can even go to a, a, a bigger studio and cut the rhythm section and then go do all your overdubs at somebody's house, you know. And and you get fairly good quality with that. And um, But I, our band, we've that's not the way I want to do it. I mean, I, I want to go to a real studio. I think it focuses, when, when time is money, you know, when, when every tick of the clock is you're paying for, and, and you're in a place that's renowned for great sounds and platinum records all over the wall. So, you know, we, uh, we've recorded in every major studio in this town over all the years, except for Ardent. Hmm. And uh, Jody Stevens, who's been the, the studio manager there for many years and who was the drummer for Big Star for equally as long, uh, I, who I've known sitting on various boards around town forever sweet guy wonderful human being uh, he got wind through social media that we were thinking about cutting a record he was like hey you know he sent me some private messages hey Richard you know we, we really we'd like for you to come John Fry passed and we had talked about um, John Hampton producing wow. our next record but he passed too yes and, uh, and Jody was like you, you, we need you here you really need to come to Arden I think it would be a great great mix and of course our drummer also um, had a, uh, a physical issue and, mm -hmm. and it fell by the wayside as well. And and when Jody was, he, several times he bugged me. And we, I was considering several options. Maybe uh, Royal was, was an idea. Mm. And, you know, Andy has kind of a studio in his house. We're thinking maybe we might, you know, I don't know. But then I, I the next time I happened to see Jody out, I was like, okay, I'll tell you what. We'll come to Ardent and we'll do the record there. But you got to play drums on a track. Oh, yeah. And he said, done. I was like, yes. Sweet. <laughs> So, and we've also had the same engineer for almost all of our records, Kevin Houston, who is an amazing engineer and great guy and our brother. Um, but for this record, and, and I, I 
called him beforehand and told him, no, you haven't done anything wrong. There's no slight. There's no problem. We love you. It's all good. As a matter of fact, I, before we did the final mixes, I shipped them to him and had him tell me what he thought. And he, you know, it's, he, But I wanted to go to Arden. I wanted to use the house engineer at Arden that knows the place better than anyone, Adam Hill. Great. Yeah. And, and not yeah. only have him engineer, but... And here's another issue with our band is at one point we were going to change the name of the band to the Chiefs, right? Too many Chiefs, really? not enough, too many Chiefs, not enough Indians, right? <laughs> and we ain't nothing, nothing but Chiefs in the band. So, uh, you know, and it's always better to use a New Orleans phrase to have a big Chief Jolly, to have somebody that, that's not invested in the songs. It's not their baby. They don't own it. They're an unbiased outside party. Because I know the records that I've produced... It's real easy when it's somebody else's song to go, yeah, tell you what, let's shorten the intro, let's move the bridge here, we'll double the chorus at the end. You know, when, you, when you're laying somebody else's songs out, it's it's easy to see what works and what doesn't. Right. But when it's your baby, right. you know. So I also, we asked Adam if he would not only be the engineer, but also be a co-producer with us. Mm. To have that, that, that outside party, unbiased person who could, and I told him, you know, some of your suggestions are going to fly, just like mine, and some of them aren't. But I don't want you to be a knob tweedler. I want you to be somebody who's, be, please be fully willing and able to, 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 to suggest ideas and criticisms and, and you know, and he did. He actually threw several things at us that were pivotal in the record that mm. we're making. But we went to Artie. And, you know, that's it, just the vibe in that place, yes. you know, the, the energy, the, the, the history. It's just amazing to, you know, and I said it several times to Adam when I got there in the mornings, you know, I was like, t t I took a week off of work, there's a couple more, probably more, maybe more 10 days off of work, my job, and and when you pull into the Arden parking lot, you know, and I've got a great batch of songs, all my, my best buds, and the band's like stronger than it's ever been in a long time, and the best studio in town, and the killer engine, it's like, you, life is so mm. good, right? It's like, I, and it's so... Um, you know the energy's there to be creative, to to to, to push yourself. Because you know in a gig, and you know gigs are amazing, and gigs could go anywhere, but gigs are ephemeral. You know you play it, and the music goes off into people's ears or off into the ether, and and it's gone forever. In the studio, it's there forever, right? Yeah. And you want, and you, there's a, there's sort of a push me pull you between wanting to make sure you get it exactly right. And to make sure you get it to feel exactly right, because sometimes the mistake tracks are better than the right ones, you know. And you got to know when. That's where your producer sort of comes in, where you can give up, because there there's a many series of compromises that have to be made when you're making a record between the writers and the different instrumentations and and the different arranger. You know, there's so many different variables, and somewhere along the line, decisions have to be made. And some people are going to be happy with some of those decisions, and some of them aren't. And it's always kind of better to sort of if you have a someone you've given that. That right. you be the producer. Uh, the, you bad, the, the bad cop? Well, that way, everyone in the band has somebody else to blame outside the band when the record comes out, and it's, it's, it's oh, it's his fault. You know? <laughs> so, but this time we didn't do that. We, we self produced along with Adam as our co producer. And as it, so, as it just turned out, I think and many of the reviewers that have reviewed it think, and my wife thinks, <laughs> which is the only, the only critic that really matters. It's our best record to date, you know, and that's uh, which is titled "What It Is." What it, it because it is because it is what it is what it is, and um, that and that title came from Andy, who shows up when he walks into gigs and when he when he arrives with his gear, he says "What it is." That's kind of you know it's sort of one of his catchphrases. <laughs> I so like that guy. That's where it came from. He, he, he okay. He, uh, Jonathan Bass here uh, uh, is an exceptional guitarist. Yes, I've heard him. He's amazing. <laughs> Andy, Andy Tate is is a sight to behold. 
with, with you know he's a little more reserved, I think, on the kaleidoscope. Uh, some of your other musical sure, incarnations. Yeah. But for all of you listening right now who can come down to Blue City Cafe on a Sunday night, you, you, you need you need to see Andy Tate. Yeah, I mean, you need to see all the guys really hit. Good. But but it's really a, a delight. Andy Tate is a musical wizard. Yes, and, uh, he's he he's. And he's with that beard, he kind of looks like a wizard. <laughs> he's Father Time on the guitar. <laughs> and let's hey, while we're while we're, we're talking about the band, let's mention everybody so everyone gets yeah, the, please, gets the, gets sure, the piece of the puzzle. Um, Chris Stevenson is our keyboard player, and yes. I, I guess my co-lead vocalist, especially on the record, amazingly soulful man, yes. uh, great keyboard player, plays B three and piano and electric piano and whirly and everything else he can coax out of his boards. And and his nickname, where he goes by, his Doctor Fangus, Doc Fangus, Fangus, Doc Fangus, F A N G A Z, yeah, Fangus, Greg Lundy plays the drums. He uh, took over for David when he yeah. um, had his uh, issue. And uh, step right in, world class drummer, P- powerful drummer, uh, powerful, strong, yes, uh, creative, yeah, uh, listens. I mean, he picks up on stuff real fast. Um, great guy. Um, Pete Climey is our uh, primary saxophone player. He plays tenor, barry, soprano, and an ewe okay. electronic wind instrument. The ewe. Now, yeah, now, yeah, now yeah, Peter's yeah. rig. Now he, he's another wizard. Uh, yeah. a, 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 a technical woodwind wizard of right, sorts. Right. Yeah, his he's dedicated to. Oh, very very few horn players you'll see that have you know a, 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 a pedal board and you know <laughs> yeah. their own monitor and yeah. you know I mean, effects. But but whatnot. it works. But oh, it he's all, great. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, it, and, and he's it, also the horn section leader and, and writes all the uh, oh. horn arrangements and you know our entire gig for the horn guys is all on iPad. So yes. when the people have to sub out the new. If, if you can read, you can play the free roll gig. You know, and that's a, that's a big it's a big bonus. Very know. much. Uh, Jerry Dover's a trumpet player, great, great also trumpet player. another uh, co-lead vocalist live. Uh, he sings all the high stuff, mm. and um, he plays percussion a lot as well. And so he's, he's, when he, when he's not at the gig and we have a sub trumpet player, I, I miss Jared's trumpet playing, but maybe more than that, I miss his vocals. Wonderful. He adds all these, and he also has perfect pitch. He can tell you any note oh. you're singing. You know, he he, he, he and he grabs these harmonies that I don't even hear. I can't hear. I would never be able to grab these these. Bizarre, but he's right on him. Isn't that infuriating? <laughs> yeah, you meet somebody he's, like that. Yeah, just like, he's, uh. he's right on it. And uh, Friedman Storch is the trombone player. Also sings a little some background and plays some percussion. And cowbell. Cowbell. More <laughs> cowbell. <laughs> okay, now, now I tell you, when, 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 I, when I'm uh, bragging on Free World, especially here at Ernst St. Hazel's, and, and, and if people who are in, from out of town, and I said, oh, it's a great band. They, they, they kind of jam band. They do some soul. They, and they have horns. That's when they, oh, oh, that that's when the things pick yeah. up. That's when it's like real. I said, yeah, killer horn section. And you say that every single time. I say and, that every single time. Almost every single time, people and, go, oh, and and they, they usually head down your way. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, horns is a lux- horns is luxurious in today's world. I would say. I would say. Wait till you got to pay them. <laughs> it's, you know, and not, 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 they're worth every dime, and I love them, and, and I love we, Free World's always been a horn band since day one, and and it's great, and I love it, and and it it it. It sets us apart, you know, from almost every other band. There's there's a few ba- other bands in town that have horns, but but that's that's really a part of the calling card of the band. But every now and, but, and then okay, you but, start calculating price per but, note. Okay, look, 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 I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it's not lazy horns either, though. I mean that that's these guys are bad at all of them. They, no, they, no, and, and yeah, I mean there's effort, like you said, there's horn parts. There's yeah, it's it's just not guys showing up and being like ah. 
And musicians know what I'm talking about, like lazy horns. Yeah, they're not humming our upcoming parts to each other in the background. No, he writes some aggressive parts, and, no, and they're all on iPad, and you better be playing yeah, them right. right. If, if you sit, if he ain't on your ass. I'm going to be. If so. you sit in like I, I do when, when you let me once in a while, and 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 and, and you play uh, My Old School by Steely Dan, they're hitting that California falls yeah. into the sea lick. Yeah, they kill it. Every, yeah, it's just like I can't wait for. I always, I always just get a little like, oh. yeah, it's delightful. Um, so ardent, you hit ardent you, you, from the beginning. Like I never once heard, and we were working together while you were actually recording. Just it was like you know, I'm sure you wish it just could have gone on, gone on forever. It was just a delightful process. The worst part about recording a record and the actual recording part of it, you know, you've got this goal, and generally you're going to have a whiteboard, and as you get through it, you're sort of scratching all things. Okay, wait, we got a progression track left on this one. We got some harmony vocals on this one. And as you get, when you get down to the last thing you scratch off, it's like, yay! Oh no, it's now, over. We're, now we're not coming back here anymore. <sighs> you know, it's like ah. Oh. It's, you're rushing headlong to this goal, and when you get to it, it's like this dagger in the heart, you know. It's like, and, and, and you had a, yeah. Uh, was it mastering? Or was it the actual mix down you headed out to LA for? So, I mentioned before, Dave Aaron was our sound man for about four months in '88. He graduated from the University of Memphis, and he, but he was really more of a studio guy. Mm-hmm. It, my, my first conversation with him, I showed up at, at a gig, and, and, and Willie had dropped the PA off and was all sort of sitting on the stage. And I knew a little bit about the PA, but not really a whole lot. And Dave was like, you know, hey, uh, you, know, you know anything about putting this PA together? And my first words ever to Dave were, I don't know, I play bass. <laughs> so that was our start you know but but he was our sound man for a while then he moved on he he worked at sun studio for a while he did the rattle and hum session with uh u2 and bb mm. king and all that stuff and uh he then he moved out to la and he became somebody you know yeah. and he's he's massive the most successful free world alumnus by far dave aaron well he's he's wanted to get back to us for a long time you know like, yeah, i want to do i want to do a record i want to help you guys out I wanna, you know and uh you know He's kind of, he's out of our league, you know. He's like, you know, I don't want to take up your time with some piddly little project here when, you know, you're doing records on Prince, you know. I mean, it's not like, you know, I don't, you know. And also, he's kind of a hip-hop, he's Snoop Dogg, and he's D.I.'s guy now, and he's he's a hip-hop dude, and we're not really a hip-hop band, and I don't, you know, the sensibility's a little different, and I kind of, eh. I just sort of, I never said no, and I never said yes, and we talk, and I'm, yeah. And then uh, he came to town in 2012 when we got the Brass Note, because you know he's part of the original yeah. core of the band from back in the day, and we're taking pictures and you know with the brass node and down on Beale Street, and it's all good. And he comes up to me kind of on the sly, and he puts his finger right up in my face, and he says, "Look, mother, I'm mixing your next record." Mm. And I said, "Okay." I mean, you know, uh, let me think. Should I let the guy with million dollar ears mix my next record? Okay, I guess I'll let him do it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know. It was a joy to work with him again because it was so long. It was, you know, 30 years ago that we worked together. And he actually recorded my first solo project up in my bedroom. We all used to live together. It was a free world house on Madison that we all kind of lived together and the free world, free love club after gigs and whatnot. And it was, it was some fun there for sure. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, he, up, up in my room, he recorded my first solo project. He, just he and I, it's great. Um, but it was so Andy and I flew out to California and we shipped him the beforehand the the hard drive with with all the the basic tracks and he got a pretty good jump on it and Andy and I went to his uh, Hollywood Way Studios in Burbank where he'd done records on everybody and anybody and you know and we sat there for three or four days and 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 finalized and tweaked and fixed mixes and got them you know 
between his sensibility and, and, and where we can, you know, got it, got it just right. Uh, brought him back here and uh, in town, uh, Euphonics Mastering, yeah. Brad Blackwood mm. is a Grammy Award winning mastering artist. And An- another Memphis jewel. And the majority of his gear, if you go to his website and check it out, a lot of it's proprietary. A lot of it's stuff he built on his own. It's clean. It's all, you know, it's, it's gold capacitors and, you know, it's all short little short wires to minimize, you know, he's got his own little room. You're not allowed to go there. <laughs> You know, uh, you give him your project and he gives it back to you because that's the way he rolls. Sure. And uh, he, when you AB what I gave him and what he gave back to me, it's, it's night and day. Not, I mean, we, 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 the combination of cutting in the best studio in town, million dollar ears mixing it, and Brad Blackwood mastering it, I've never heard any free roll record that touches this one, sonically speaking. The songs were the best. Like, well, the best 11, the best 10 out of the 16 or 17 we wrote. So it's good songs, great recording, great mixing, great mastering. And then um, we used, uh, for the second record in a row, David Lynch, who's a very prominent Memphis artist. Who You know his style. You know his, he's, you see his murals all over town. He's, he's amazing. Um, we used one of his records for our From the Bluff record in 2000, one of his paintings. Well, I went, to his, went back to his website, and like I said, all his stuff is, has a very unique, he has his own style of painting. But there was one. Mm. There was nothing like all the rest of the stuff, and I was like, that's the one. And it's, it's Beale Street. Yeah. It, but it looks like a combination of, of Beale Street and Bourbon Street and Paris. You know, it's a sort of, it's an oil painting. He does everything else in a different kind of, he, he, that was the, he, he, was, he hadn't done art for a long time and he decided he was going to get back into it and he did that painting. He didn't really like it and he went to another, another medium and he's done everything in that sense. But there was that one painting that's like n- unlike everything else. So the artwork was great. The, everything about the record was great. We hired Betsy Brown as a publicist and we've gotten reviews from, and radio airplay from all over the world. All yeah. over Europe, all over Australia, all over America. Um, great reviews. Very little, very little negative said about it. I mean, you know, and you can't believe the hype either way, right? You're going to get good reviews and bad reviews, and you're going to be in some people's top ten records of 2017. You're going to be in some people's bottom five. You know, it's it, you know, yeah. you got to you got to believe in your own thing and not really. Some people are going to love it, and some people are going to hate it. Can't can't please them all. But but making a record is also something that requires um, drive, uh, intent. Records don't fall out of the sky. T- how, how did you finance this record? So let's get a little nerdy on the. Uh, um, how we do things a little bit different than a lot of bands do. Probably another avenue of discipline, I'm sure, right? Yes. Um, so, first off, the, the tip bucket money never gets split up. The tip bucket money goes to the band fund. We call it the band fund. There's a there's a record label um, slush fund of money that that gets fed, and it has to be because there's a lot. of... And, and then the larger gigs, the wedding receptions, the corporate parties, the, the gigs that pay a lot of money, yeah. we'll pay ourselves two-thirds of that money and put the other part of it back. And over the course of years of, of time doing this, it, that money builds up. And, it's, and the, the band has expenses as well. The band has a, a, um, a storage shed the band has to pay for. The band has a, a, a voicemail in the sky that gets paid for the band. And when we play... We play a lot of benefit gigs, and we play stuff like the Fool's Ball and things that are that we're not getting paid for. They're doing it out of the, uh, the joy of our heart. But we'll also take a little money out of the band fund and pay ourselves just a little bit, you know, cover our gas money or whatnot. And have so there, there's the, if there's six people in the band, there's seven cuts of the money. Okay. So that the band gets paid too. 
you know, and over time, so when it's time to go, when we decide we want to make a record and we've got enough songs and we want to go to the studio and do it, there's money there. We don't have to play a couple gigs for free and hurt ourselves over it. Or borrow. Or, or, or crowdsource or any of that. We pay for it out of, out of, and then what we do after the fact, during the course of every year, as we sell CDs, the money goes into separate envelopes, I guess, if you will, sort of for for the various records that, and each record has has an equation associated with it. Uh, all monies for every record get split in half. Half is um, mechanical royalties, half is publishing royalties. So the, the mechanical royalties go to everyone who who took their time to come to the studio and and you know took all time off work or whatever. You know, actually were in the studio and made the record. And that pretty much gets split up evenly. And then the publishing royalties go to the people who wrote the songs. If you took your time, you know, we have separate rehearsals around, you know, record time. And, you know, everyone's, if we're, we're, we're going to be at, the, Pete works at St. George's as the IT guy, and they right. were joyous enough to, generous enough to allow us to use their chorale room as our rehearsal space. Already had a PA in it, you know, a piano set up in it. We go there and write. Well, of course, t- you know, this Tuesday night, we're going to have a writing night. Well, not everybody in the band shows up. And maybe because they have a gig or maybe because they don't feel like it or maybe they're not really a writing guy. Well, that's fine. That's your call. Because when the money, and I save all the money up during the course of the year from all the, the CD sales and around Christmas we get a Christmas bonus. And all the money from that we saw all the CDs during the course of the year gets crushed through the equations and everybody gets their piece of it. You know, and you're going to get, if you went to, not only were in the studio every day, but went to all the writing rehearsals and contributed to the writing of the songs, you're going to get a little bit bigger check than the guys who... I, I hope our listeners are paying attention. This I was is, just going to say this is beyond. Uh, this is a, a, a slight step beyond the typical uh, beer slinging uh, cover band. Uh, this is one. This it's one, free advice, this, kids. This, this, yes, I mean yeah, th- we're not charging for this. This 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 is, this is <laughs> highly intentional. Uh, uh, it's it's having management. Free world has always been larger than the sum of its parts. Hmm. I, I feed the dragon. I'm the, the, the dragon boy, but I'm not the dragon. The seventh member. And, and neither is anybody else in the band. And it seems like, and it, 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 it deserves its tribute. And it gets its money, and it gets its time, and it gets its energy. And it directs me in the, the way it needs to go or wants to go. And I can help to guide it. But in some ways, and every time, almost every time someone's been ready to leave the band, there's kind of somebody else in the wings ready to slip in. And it's, it's always been sort of a thing that, I, it's been going, for, going on 31 years now. And, and a, a lot of that is me, but some of it's not me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of got its own will to live, and it it it, it forces itself to, but but there's but there's there, it has it takes some intent, it yes. takes some thought process, it takes some some you know it, some creative juggling, it you know not just a personnel but of money, and it's it's it it just has to be thought of as more than a vehicle for you to make rent. You know, it's it's more than that. I, I, do you have anything, Jonathan? You, no, you, I was just going to say that was one of my key questions for tonight was the the question about the longevity of Free World. And, I mean, man, there's so many attributions that we've covered tonight. Okay, okay, I, I want to tell my favorite Free World story, my personal favorite mm-hmm. Free World story. And, and, it, and it came out of time. I've been, in, I've been in Memphis now for almost six years. And, and I, I've, I've turned... How many people do you meet that, that crab about Memphis that are just down Oh, yeah, Memphis, too many. Right? Okay, right? And then you also meet people that are just very positive. They're like, hey, good things are happening. Yeah. Hey, Memphis is a music town. Hey, there are artists here. Hey, 
uh, Arden Studio still going. Uh, uh, Willie uh, Willie Mitchell's Rural Recording Willie Studio, Mi- right? I mean, a Grammy. On. Come on, right? I mean, so you have all, and I, I've turned a personal corner, I think, in my own attitude. But it started with free. Here's my free world testimony. It started with free world, and I was um, visiting a Sunday night, and I was going through a, a personal. Uh, my, my, I moved here for a job that fell apart, so I wasn't really feeling much happiness towards Memphis in general. But I met a guy, and Tom Bowen, if you're listening, Tom Bowen from Wales, who uh, came to Memphis. Uh, he, he had a, a personal rough spot, and he decided he was going to go to Memphis to start to, to heal up personally, right? And, and, he, and he's hanging out uh, at Blue City Cafe on a Sunday night. And uh, we, we'd already kind of st- had a friendship started, and... Um, I mentioned it. We, 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 I sat next to him. He looked like from the band Oasis. He had dark, skinny jeans and hair kind of swept over his face, you know, and, and an English accent. And um, at, at some point, you called me up to sit in, had a blast as I always do. I sit down. He said, Oh, you play? I said, Yeah. Do, do you? He's like, Yeah. I said, Well, you play guitar? Yeah. I said, You know, I, I, know, I know Richard. Maybe he'll, he'll let you sit in if you can play. Can you play? He's like, Well, well yeah, sure. And, and you, you made the guy's, I think you made that guy's year. Awesome. I mean, he was, he, it, it was, you know, and I was able to capture it on my phone. And, uh, and for the next three weeks, I kind of became a, a mild tour guide of Memphis of barely even knowing the town myself. But I took him out to Jack Rowell's at Neal's. Um, we had him over for dinner. <laughs> and and uh, I think he made it down to New Orleans. But his, his you, you kind of defined his Memphis experience. Uh, and it was... It was a powerful, and it, it spoke to me of, of the renown of Memphis. People have asked me, what do you think of Memphis? I said, well, there's some problems, right? Any city's got some issues. Um, but if, if, if Memphis could rise up to its renown, it, it, would, it would be unstoppable. And, and, and it, it is, it's, it's, it's taking names and kicking butt already. But, but what, what, what hopes do you have for Memphis and in, in, in where you've seen it and where, where you think it's going? Well, you know, I've heard it said more than once that Memphis is a great place to be from, not always that great of a place to be in, mm-hmm. right? And and primarily as as a musician anyway, it's a great incubator of talent. There's something in the water, right? There's a bar in this town. You, if you're playing out, you gotta be you gotta be over the bar because there's some great players. Oh, in this it's great town. every on every corner and every yes. bar. There's somebody who can cut your head off. You know, yes. that's, that goes for all of us. You know, there's no one in this town. It, it, and that's all. That's it's it's good and bad. I'm gonna I'll digress for a moment. There's plenty of cats in this town that can slice my head off on a bass or any other singing, whatever, band leading. Um, but there's not really much of a competition here. We're all part of the fraternity. We're all brothers. You know, I, I, I rarely, if ever, feel any sense of, of competition with any of my bass playing brothers or any of my other band member. But, you know, we're, we're all in this, we're all in the same, in the same bucket, you know, right. and all, but back to great place to be from, there's, Talent galore, and there's, there's 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 history here, and there's there's people to mentor from, and there's the old school and new school, and they're more than happy to mingle and teach, and that's great. But there's also no record labels, no management companies, no lawyers, no mm-hmm. publishing houses. There's there's no industry here at all, right? And um, that's why the talent leaves Nashville, New York, L.A. If you're good enough. To, to do something seriously with your music, you pretty much gotta leave. Yeah. Right. And I, my hope would that would be that that would change somewhat. You know, people like David Porter. There, there are record labels that 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 have started up in this town, and I think uh, 
I think there are more. I'd like to see a satellite office of, of a major label here. This mm-hmm. is something. But really, I think that the major labels are also kind of falling by the wayside as well. I mean, you, everyone yeah, has exactly. their own access to, to the entire world. But at the same time, then there's also this glut of and you, you can't find anything on the internet because you find everything. You know, right. you can't really focus. Everyone has ADD, and there's 12 jillion bands from every block on every corner, and they're all trying to make it. And it's, you know, so I don't really know that the whole major label thing. You know, really matters. But but as far as um, management and 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 just the whole infrastructure of of the professional music thing. You know, the next level up or the next next level up. I'd like to see some more of that sort of coalesce in this town to get to get people greater success without having to leave. Right. You know. That's I think that that would be important to if we could it's like like hiring Penny for the the University of Memphis basketball team. We get to keep more of the local talent here because they're going to want to stay here. Well, it would be better if they could do that musically too, to have people yeah. basically you still going to have to tour and go around, you know, not everyone can be steely Dan, but uh at least you could base yourself here and not have to be based out of Nashville or New York or LA. I'm going to circle back around and I'll insert this uh, back into the edit, but I want, um, as far as notable sit-ins with Free World, the Levon Helm. So we were, I, I told you George Paul and George Eldridge ran Blue City and they grew up just outside of Helena and I believe that Levon Helm and his family are also like, like relative County neighbors, I guess. They and, were all and sort for of, our younger audience, leave on helm from the band, the band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. The drummer, one of the primary lead singers. Um, you know, take a load off Annie and all those yeah. amazing songs. Is from about sixty miles from here. And um, back in '95, the general manager, owner of Blue City, called me up on like a Tuesday or Wednesday. Said, "Hey, you guys want to back up Leave on Helm this weekend at Blue City?" <laughs> Let me think about it. Okay, like that just came out of the blue, <laughs> like just out of nowhere. Hey, he's he had he had been there before, and I think the Kate brothers had backed him up. The Kate brothers actually had the, the it's a couple of twins who play keyboards and guitar. They're from Fayetteville, Arkansas, and they were actually members of the band after Richard Manuel passed and Robbie Robertson left. The reconstituted band toured for some time, mm-hmm. and the Kate brothers were were part of the band. So I think the Kate brothers band, which played Blue City on a semi-regular basis, had backed up Levon there once or twice before, but they were unavailable that weekend. And George Paul said, hey, you guys want to do this? <laughs> so, you know, he gives us a cassette tape and we get together and learn 15 songs real fast and show up that Friday and set up. And there's we set up two drum kits on stage, David next to Levon. And, but Levon also plays mandolin and harmonica mm. and so there were times when he was back there playing mandolin but he's still playing kick and hi-hat with his feet or a harmonica and he's still, <laughs> still playing drums or he would start a beat off and get David going on the beat and he'd drop out and play harmonica or mandolin and whatnot but we're upstairs before the gig and I said you know Mr. Helm I just I want to apologize to you we uh, we didn't really hear about this gig like two days ago we didn't really have a whole lot of time to prepare and he says oh hell we don't want to sound too slick anyway you pass that over here would you <laughs> Just, just the most, you know, self-effacing, generous, kind, homespun. If you ever read his book, he's got a book called uh, "This Wheel's on Fire." I mean, it's and he didn't write the book. It's really evident that he had uh, some meetings with his co-writer, and they interviewed him repeatedly, and they took all they they, they transcribed 
the, the interviews because nobody sits down at a typewriter and writes, oh, it's raining like a cow fishing on a flat rock. You know, nobody writes that. You know, that just kind of, but he's, he's homespun. He's real. His book is amazing. And he is, he's just like that. And we were on stage. We played two nights. And, and that was 95, July 95. And there were great gigs and we talk about them forever and there's some photographs. And, and about maybe a year and a half ago, I'm talking to a buddy of mine about those gigs. Just how, you remember when you all played with Lee Vaughn? He says, well, you know, I bootlegged that gig, right? What? You've been sitting on a recording of me and Lee Vaughn Helm for 20 years and oh, never told gosh, me? Look, mother, years. get it to me right now. <laughs> So he, again, brought me a cassette tape, and it's like, this is two years ago. What do you do with the cassette <laughs> What to do? What, what do you do? What do I need a pencil or, you know? So I, uh, I took it to a guy who digitized it, and we actually had to speed the tape. I had my harmonic at the time, and he was this in tune. I'm like, well, it sounds a little weird. I pulled out my harp, and he sped the tape up to match the, the pitch of my harp. just happened oh, to have gosh. the right harp on me at the time. And... Um, so we digitized it and, and mastered it and put it out. I can't sell it. I don't own the intellectual property on right. it, but uh, we give it away. To, it, it, I keep copies on stage. And when people request, hey, you all know anything about the band? It's like, we'll play a band. Like, hey, come here, buddy. Here, have this. You know, or, or you buy one of our new CDs and get one of these for free kind of yeah, thing. Right, right, sure. but, but to get to play, he's, he, we also did, a, as far as the, the really big time people that the Free World has ever played with, Levon Helm, um, the Memphis Horns, Mm. Steve Cropper Steve Cropper came to a gig at Blue City one night loved the band came up on break and said would you mind if I sat in and play with you guys would you mind <laughs> let yeah. me see okay why don't we do this Steve Cropper this amazing <sighs> we, we did um, we've, we've done we, we did a, a big festival gig out in, in, in North Carolina where we warmed up for um, for the for the Tedeschi Trucks band and Blues Traveler you know sort of all on the same stage same night got to hang out with all of them um but the Levon, that's just, you know, the, I, there were several times that I look back in the middle of the gig and, and I look down at my feet and it's like, I'm standing in Rick Danko's shoes. Like, ah, like, like literally, you know. Literally, like, yeah. And <laughs> it was just uh, fantastic. Wonderful. One of the best. Wonderful. So if you want a copy, let me know. I got him. I want a copy. It's cool. Yeah. Got to come to a gig. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. Well, Jonathan? Well, Man. Carl. I mean, I, we didn't hardly have to do anything, honestly. I, I really feel like I've stolen something. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for, for ta taking a, a, a Tuesday night out of your busy gigging week and talking to Memphis Machine. Uh, Y'all get online and check out what it is. You go, to, you go to the website. It's freeworldmemphis.com. Yeah. There's a gig schedule there that you can always find out where we're playing. Regular places we play. We play every Thursday night at the Blind Bear. That's a, I have a, a side project externally from Free World that's... If it's Free World, I'm playing bass and there's horns. Right. If it's Kaleidoscope, I'm generally playing guitar and there are no horns. And that's Kaleidoscope's more of a covered gig and it's more fun and we have a good time. And So we play every Thursday at the, at, at the Blind Bear. And then Free Roll plays every other Friday and Saturday at Rum Boogie. Rum Boogie. And, of course, every Sunday at Blue City Cafe on Beale. And then we do some various things. Uh, Central Barbecue every Saturday afternoon, noon mm. to three, downtown. Uh, you know, we're... And Free World is available for hire. That's right. Wedding yeah. receptions, bar mitzvahs. Uh, Anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> corporate it, events. Corporate events. Yes. So, yeah, again, freerollmemphis.com. There's a, there's a gay schedule. Go there and check it out. Wonderful. Richard, Come find us. Thank you so much. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you all. Wonderful. Hope you enjoyed that session with Richard and us. Um, again, it was a delightful hang. 
People know what I mean by that when I say hang, right? That's musician speak. I certainly hope so. I hope so. It was a delightful meeting of the minds. We were hanging out. We were hanging out. Yes. Um, Again, uh, be sure and visit our sponsors, Snakebite Company, Redwire, AV, and of course, you have to visit Ernestine Hazel's. And uh, check out our links, all the goodies that we've tagged uh, on this interview. Tell your friends, tell your family, and spread the word that Memphis is making good things. Review us on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Catch you next time.